Hi, I'm Talia Baroncelli, and you're watching TheAnalysis.News. I'll shortly be joined by Bruce Robertson to speak about the controversies surrounding technologies such as carbon capture and storage, as well as COP28. We're nearing the end of the year, so if you'd like to make a donation to The Analysis, which is a 401k, a nonprofit, you can do so by going to our website, theanalysis.news, and hitting the donate button at the top right corner of the screen. Don't forget to get onto our newsletter and to like and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to it, whether it be on YouTube or on podcast streaming services such as Spotify or Apple. See you in a bit with Bruce Robertson. Joining me now is Bruce Robertson. He's an independent energy analyst based in Australia. Thank you so much for joining me today, Bruce. Thank you very much, Talia, for having me. Well, the past few weeks have been pretty remarkable laying out the contradictions on the global scale in terms of climate leadership. The president of COP28, Sultan al-Jaber, is also the executive of ADNOC, which is the Abu Dhabi national oil company. And so there's inevitably a huge conflict of interest there if he is, you know, the head of an oil company and is also directing or serving as the the envoy to COP28 at the same time. And that was exemplified in some of his comments recently where he said that there's no science backing up the fact that we need a phasing out of fossil fuels. So what do you make of those comments? Well, it's, it's pretty amazing because the COP really has been hijacked by the, by the um, oil and gas industry, um, to put it bluntly. Uh, you, you know, you look at uh, ADNOC, um, which Al Jabir is, um, Sultan Al Jabir is chief executive officer of, um, you know, they used the COP28 as an opportunity to announce this big announcement of a cooperation agreement with Australia, Santos, um, to do uh, carbon capture and storage uh, hubs. So, um, you know, they're using it as a commercial opportunity, uh, really, to promote their business interests. And, 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 you know, you look at the number of fossil fuel executives or consultants at, uh, at, at COP28, and, and the place is overwhelmed with basically oil and gas companies, their representatives and their consultants in the form of companies like McKinsey's, Ernest & Young, yeah, you know, the big consulting uh, firms globally, um, who whose clients are the oil and gas industry to to a large extent. Um, they, they they have large oil and gas businesses, so you know there there's an awful lot of uh, greenwashing going on at at the conference. And Sultan Al Jabir's uh, comments about you know um, you know back to the caves. Um, if we don't have oil and gas and, and we don't, you know, we don't need to phase out oil and gas. All these comments are, 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 are just speaking to his own business interests. Right. And I think one of the um, the final results of COP, or at least the, the draft that was produced, the so-called uh, global stock take, was that they should phase down fossil fuels rather than phasing out. I mean, that seems like, you know very banal lingo, but it, it in fact has a huge, it makes a huge difference as to whether you phase down or phase out fossil fuels. Um, so 
how is this being received in Australia where you are? I mean, there was a recent uh, um, mining magnate, Andrew Twiggy uh, Forrest, who made some really interesting comments recently. Yeah, well, Twiggy Forrest is is one of Australia's uh, you know biggest businessmen. I mean, he's, he's he owns one of the huge iron ore mines, um, Fortescue, um, and he um, he made a comment that uh, fossil fuel industry executives um, should have their heads handed them on spikes. Um, you know, echoing medieval days, uh, a medieval solution to the problem. Uh, now, um, it, these rather intemperate comments. Um, you know, have sparked a lot of interest. Um, basically, it, they were born out of extreme frustration, uh, you know, with, with the way that the COP28 is going. And I think many people are very frustrated with uh, the fact that, you know, the COP28 really has turned into a, a, an oil and gas industry event um, rather than an event about the climate. And um, I, I think I think that... Um, you know, a lot of people are frustrated with that and his comments, while I think they were um, a little over the top, uh, nevertheless, he had some good points to make in there. Um, you know, he, he was saying that basically carbon capture and storage doesn't really work in practice. He said 19 out of 20 projects fail to achieve their objectives and that's pretty close to the mark as to what is actually the case historically you know carbon capture and storage has been around since the 1970s it's a it's an old um technology and it's quite interesting actually because if we have a look at what um total energy ceo um said at the conference he actually said that capturing carbon dioxide was still too costly and not the solution to decarbonization and so it's interesting that, um, you know, that th there is this um, dichotomy, not just within in society more generally, but even within the oil and gas industry. You know, it's, some people do see the need, um, the, the need for the phase, phase out of fossil fuels. And, um, you, you know, the way the CEO of Total Energies was talking was was along those lines. He said decarbonisation is all about electricity and electrification. Is were his words. Um, so, you know, it's it's um, while his company has a long way to actually go to actually live up to its CEO's words, um, Total Energies is still a very heavy investor, a very heavy investor in new fossil fuel projects. So there is kind of what what is said and what is, you know, what actually occurs. And at the moment, we all know that what's occurring is uh, emissions are continuing to rise. That's that's the one fact we we can indisputably say: emissions are rising. And to achieve any goals, we need emissions to fall, not to rise. And that's the position we're in at the moment. Well, we will get to some of those failed projects, especially the LNG projects of uh, the, the Gorgon uh, LNG facility that's run by Chevron. But before we get to that, I did want to ask you about some of the other general comments made at COP28. I was watching one panel which was hosted by the IMF, and they kept going on about the need to invest in green technology and subsidizing uh, research and development. And it wasn't that they were 
you know, not talking about fossil fuels. It wasn't that they were denying that, you know, that fossil fuels need to be cut in order to reduce emissions, but it didn't seem like that was really the focus. And their solutions was that, you know, there has to be trade, there shouldn't be domestic subsidies, and there should be, you know, subsidies targeted in certain areas, such as in R&D and research and development. Um, What's your assessment on that approach? Is that enough? Well, quite simply, it's not happening. And I think we have to divorce, always in this item, we have to divorce what is said with the reality, just like Total's CEO saying that this was the way of the future and what their company's actually doing are two totally different things. Um, Same with the IMF. You know, if we actually look at what is happening, we're seeing increased, increased subsidies for fossil fuel industries at the very time that those subsidies should be being decreased. So we, it's, it's, it's almost as if we live in an Alice in Wonderland through the looking glass type world at the moment where what is said and what is actually occurring are two totally different things. And this is the fundamental point. Well, what is occurring in Australia where you're based? I mean, it seems like there are quite a few um, liquefied natural gas projects, such as the one that's run by Chevron, the the Gorgon LNG plant. Um, I mean, Chevron has invested an incredible amount of money. And my impression is that they promised that they would be able to uh, capture and store a lot of the emissions. But it seems like the first three years, they weren't even able to store any of it. (laughs) They didn't have enough I guess they didn't drill enough water out underneath the plant to store the emissions. So that wasn't successful. And and now it seems like they're not making any of their targets. So is it just the technology that's not working or are they not doing it? Well, look, I think I think really it goes to 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 the fundamental problem with carbon capture and storage. The fundamental problem with carbon capture and storage is you're relying on what's underground. And as we all know, that's never a certain thing. You can drill it out, you can have geological models, but they are just that. They are models. They are not what is exactly under there. And what um, Chevron has found is that the operating conditions underground are far more complex and far harder to deal with than they thought. They thought that they could just drill into this formation, dewater it, and then fill it with carbon dioxide because Chevron's Gorgon project is a pure carbon capture and storage project. It isn't trying to use it to produce more oil like most carbon capture and storage projects actually are. The vast majority are to produce more oil and gas. This one isn't. It's the largest one in the world that isn't. And, you know, when you look at it, you have some of the best petroleum engineers on the globe, on the planet, working on this. You have um, Chevron is the operator of the project. Shell and Exxon are major shareholders in the project, um, and and they can't get it right, and and this is a key point that and the performance of that project is not improving; it's actually going backwards, and 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 so it it is not achieving its targets. It only achieved to to capture eighty percent of the 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 emissions from producing the gas. Um, of the, 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 at the plant, right? 
that's not 80% of scope one and two emissions because there are all sorts of other emissions that they're not attempting to. to that's only 80% of the emissions from the plant and the field emissions. So um, if you have a look, what, what does that actually mean? Even if they were successful, they're only trying to address part of 10 to 15% of the emissions from their product because most of the emissions occur when the product's burnt by the customer, not by producing the gas. That's not when the emissions occur. The emissions occur when the product is burnt. And so it is carbon capture and storage, even if it worked, is a partial solution to part of the problem, a small part of the problem. The big part of the problem it doesn't address, and that's what happens when the, the fuel is burnt. Um, you know, so I, I, I really think that the, 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 the oil and gas industry saying that we can decarbonize our industry is, is really very land stuff. It, it, it's not born of real world experience as shown by Chevron's, um, Chevron's large project. And incidentally, also in the U S you had, um, Occidental Century plant, you know, it was recently sold for a fraction of its build costs. Um, you know, getting back to Total Energy's um, comment, um, it's too, still too costly, this carbon capture and storage, and it's not a solution to decarbonisation. You know, that, that, that's what the Total Energy CEO said, and I wholeheartedly agree with him. It's funny because I did hear John Kerry, the US uh, climate czar, recently say that Chevron is basically, you know, they need to do more on on all fronts, they're not doing well at all in order to meet climate targets, but that, you know, ExxonMobil is doing a bit better. And I don't really know the details details there, but it does seem like the Gorgon plant has been extremely costly. They spent like $54 billion. Um, but back to what you were saying originally, the, the Gorgon plant was supposed to be a one-of-a-kind plant. It was supposed to capture most of the emissions or a lot of the emissions. And that's different from other plants which rely on enhanced oil recovery. So using carbon capture and storage in order to get more oil out of the ground. How can you just clarify how the Gorgon plant didn't rely on enhanced oil recovery? Well, basically, most of the they didn't really have the opportunity to. There was no field nearby that they needed the carbon dioxide for that they could use the carbon dioxide for because the Gorgon plant was a, a new plant, and at the time, obviously, they didn't need the CEO to to extract the gas out of the field. It was naturally pressured. So, um, so they came up with this idea of of dewatering um, uh, formations that were near Barrow Island, and um, the first problem they encountered, um, funnily enough, was sand, um, and sand was clogging the injection points. And then they found out that the fields that they thought had a certain capacity had a far lower capacity. That's a common problem with carbon capture and storage: is, is that the fields that they store them in. Uh, uh, don't have the capacity that the, the, the geologists first think. I mean, that happened even at one of the successful plants, which was um, supposedly successful plants. It's held up as a you know um, model plant by the global carbon capture and storage industry. The um, the Snowvit plant uh, by Equinor in Norway. Um, 
basically they thought they had a ge geological structure that had 18 years worth of CO2 storage. And when they actually started drilling it and using it, um, it had two years. 18 versus two. 18 they expected and they got two. And then they had to go and, 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 and drill more holes to discover more fields that they could put the carbon dioxide in. So subsequently, the project was far more expensive than they expected. And this is a common theme in, in carbon capture and storage is, is that it ends up being far more expensive um, than they at first thought. I mean, Chevron has spent far more money on than they expected to on, on carbon capture and storage, both in building the plant and subsequently um, now in having to drill more holes and find more formations to store the C CO2 because the fuel capacity just isn't what they, they, they modelled it as. And, um, you know, th this is a very common problem and it really affects the economics of, 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 of carbon capture and storage. And basically that goes, again, to, you know, the comments that have been made at COP28 that it's not economic and it's not economic. And, and this is the key point, is, is the costs are always much higher than they expected, both to build the plant and then in the implementation, the field costs in having to drill more wells. And it's a very common, common theme throughout this industry. Well, the Prime Minister of Australia, Anthony Albanese, has had um, certain climate uh, goals, I guess you would say. He's committed to um, reducing emissions by 43% by 2030 compared to 2005 levels. And I believe, you know, some of the legislation that was passed recently in, in the spring is supposed to bring about or, or make possible some of those commitments. And uh, one of the um, measures was to uh, introduce legislation that would target 215 of the largest emitters. So I'm assuming the Gorgon plant falls under that rubric. And what would happen was that, you know, if they were able to cut some of the emissions, then they could get uh, carbon credits. So I'm wondering, what do you make of the carbon credit system? Is it effective and is it legitimate? Does it have any integrity? Uh, well, the Australian uh, scheme, uh, you know, like, you know, glo globally, they've come in for a lot of criticism, the global carbon credits. There have been a lot of schemes that have shown to be fr basically fraudulent. Um, in Australia, we've had similar problems. Uh, I think it would be fair to say uh, the, the, the one of the people that was uh, actually engaged in setting up the scheme um, came out and said that he... He believed that um, the, the the credits aren't, aren't uh, you know don't have integrity. Uh, the Australian carbon credit units, um, they were, you know, basically um, that th there was something called avoided deforestation, which was rather amusing because I, I farm basically, as 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 well as uh, look at energy. I I have a farm and um, I understand pretty well how farming works coming from a uh, you know a bit of a farming family um, and uh, you know in, in Australia the land that hasn't been cleared um, really is not economic to clear um, because uh, you know knocking down the trees is more expensive than the beef or, or the crops you're going to grow on that land and uh, 
you know, they were paying people not to knock down trees that they were never going to knock down anyway. So the whole thing was a little bit, um, yeah, a little bit of a fraud really. Um, and uh, so the carbon credit scheme doesn't really work. Um, with the Australian scheme though, um, to reduce emissions, the safeguard mechanism, there is a hard cap that was put on there by the Greens in, in negotiating this deal. And what that means is that um, it limits the usage of carbon credits to offset um, offset emissions. So there has to be some real reduction in emissions. The baseline is set at the beginning of the scheme, and then every year that drops by 4.9%. Um, they have to, And so that difference has to be made up by carbon credits or by real reductions. But the Greens have actually put in this clause that means that some of the some of the reductions will have to be real. Um, so it will be it will be interesting to see how it all develops over time and how much industry pushes back over time, and and what 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 the upshot of all this is. It, it's still rather uncertain as to how um, you know if it will result in real in real emissions reductions. But 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 it looks like it will reduce you know reduce emissions overall. Uh, it, it is acts a little bit like a carbon uh, tax, um, which is um, a word that can't be said in Australia. Luckily, I'm not saying it. I'm saying it in an international interview because uh, it, it's political poison, uh, the idea of a carbon tax. But that's essentially what the safeguard mechanism is in the end. It is forcing forcing them to reduce emissions. And so it, it, it's, it's unknown yet whether it will be highly effective or effective or not effective. All right. Well, you're saying that the baseline would decrease. So companies would have to reduce their emissions over time. But I'm just thinking of another example, for example, you know, the banking industry, um, companies or, or banks like HSBC, they're in, involved or traditionally they've been involved in money laundering, basically. And as opposed to changing their practices, they've just paid fines because they could afford to pay a fine without radically transforming the way business is conducted within the bank itself. So do you see that happening with these big polluters? I mean, are they just kind of getting away with it by paying a fine here or there by maybe giving, you know, a carbon credit or paying for carbon credit and actually continuing to uh, emit as drastically as they are? Yeah, look, look, look. I think I think that for for some of them that that will occur. Some of them will will, will just pay fines or or buy a CCU carbon credit units, which is essentially like tax, if you like. Um, so, um, yes, yeah, so, some of them will. But look, I think also some of them will make some genuine efforts. Um, uh, you know, to operate in Australia, you know, um, there are a lot of people that hold climate pretty dearly to 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 to, to their future existence um australia is not a cool climate where i sit today you know it's going to be 36 degrees today and, and that that's that's celsius not fahrenheit uh, which is a pretty warm day by anyone's uh and you know we'll see 38 or 40 on the weekend um you, you know 40 degrees celsius which is really hot um uh so so the idea of um increased heat is not really um very welcome amongst the australian populace and it's um uh it's a pretty 
era-defining issue, climate change, I think, in Australia. So, um, you know, a lot of these companies will want to make a genuine effort and be seen to be making a genuine effort um, because they want to operate in Australia. Um, and increasingly we're seeing uh, it, it, it's harder and harder to do um, projects of any description in Australia where we've been finding that with renewables. You know, getting power lines in, for example, is very, very difficult now. Getting pipelines in is very, very difficult. The oil and gas companies finding that in New South Wales, um, landholders are simply saying no to projects on their land. So um, uh, under law, that's uh, an interesting thing because they can't really say no in the end, but uh, under Australian law, but, um, you know, they are at the moment. So there, there, there is a bit of social conflict going around about um, uh, just generally, I think, in Australia. And, and, and it's not necessarily renewables or, or oil and gas industry focused, but it's, it's everywhere. So there, there is a, a need for companies to gain social license to operate. And um, it, it sounds always like a nebulous concept, but um, it's not a nebulous concept because uh, companies of all descriptions are finding it's a very real business risk not having um, society on side. And so I, I do think that there will be real reductions um, come out of the scheme because I think the companies are being forced um, by societal pressure to actually do something. And in Australia right now, are you know uh, oil and gas companies allowed to begin or initiate new projects or is there a cap on that currently? Uh, there's no cap on it, and um, they are forging ahead with massive um, oil and gas projects or LNG projects, really, um, not, not focused on oil, focused on gas, um, liquefied natural gas projects in, in the Northern Territory. You've got Santos's Barossa project. Off the Northwest Shelf, you've got the Scarborough um, uh, um, uh, LNG project at Woodside. These are, these Woodside, are globally... Right? Yeah, Woodside Petroleum. Um, these are globally significant projects. Incidentally, those two companies, like um, uh, many oil and gas companies, are now looking at merging. Um, uh, Woodside took over BHP Petroleum um, just over a year ago, and now Woodside are looking at merging with Santos. This is a global trend in oil and gas. You've seen massive consolidation in the US with ExxonMobil buying up people, Chevron buying up the companies. You know, Hescorp was bought up. You know, all these quite large um, oil and gas companies are, are merging together. It's because um, they're finding, dif uh, you know, they're finding the going pretty difficult. You know, you look at Woodside and, and Santos and they've been appalling performing stocks on the Australian Stock Exchange over the short, medium and long term. Um, uh, you know, so their access to capital is shutting down because um, they can't produce the returns that, 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 that you know, the market needs from them. Uh, and so that, that, that it's a fascinating um, global phenomena that's occurring. You're seeing, seeing the industry consolidate um, massively globally and um, the number of players reduce. Um, and so, you know, they, they will use that power to monopoly price, basically. Um, you know, uh, that, that, that's what they're trying to do is to get to the position where they just control everything. 
energy-wise in, in the fossil fuel space and then use that to, to, to push the prices up for domestic consumers. It's already happened in gas in Australia. We, we pay ridiculous prices for gas in Australia, but if Woodside and Santos merge, it will, will get much, much worse. Um, so it will be interesting to see if our competition regulator will actually allow it, but they're talking about it right now. Um, that's hot off the press this morning, actually, um, that, that they're in talks. Um, so, uh, you know, um, I, I think it's a really interesting phenomenon, not just in Australia, but globally, as I said. Um, you're seeing this massive consolidation in the oil and gas industry. And we have to face facts. You know, we still do rely on oil and gas in our daily lives, um, uh, much as we would like to wean ourselves off them and have to wean ourselves off them um, at present. That that's the case. And if you allow all these mergers to go ahead, it does mean that these companies are more powerful and can rely more on monopoly pricing um, to, to, to um, force up energy costs globally. Well, on the topic of this convergence or consolidation of resources within the big oil and gas sector, let's hope that the Australian antitrust regulator is able to prevent the merger of those two companies, Santos and Woodside. I recently saw a Woodside executive speak about Woodside's role in the energy transition, arguing that they're providing cleaner energy, being liquefied natural gas, to other countries in Asia, such as Japan, which, uh, you know, countries which still actually burn coal, so that they're part of the clean energy transition. But I mean, liquefied natural gas is, is still a hydrocarbon. It's still a fossil fuel. So yeah, it's better than coal, but it's it's not a renewable. Um, but back to the issue of monopoly, how would you say these companies are contributing to the increase of prices globally? Uh, well, if the consolidation goes ahead, yes, because um, basically, you know, th there'll be less people for our, our offshore companies to deal with. Um, it, it's that simple. They'll, they'll have more bargaining power. Um, so globally, it will force up prices. Um, what What is actually this doing? It's, it's actually high, hastening the demise of the oil and gas industry, it's particularly the gas industry, because it's coming up against big competitive pressures now from ever cheaper solar, basically. Um, solar is just getting cheaper and cheaper to roll out. Um, in our own country, you know, we're seeing a lot of people here in Australia with rooftop solar. Um, the one thing the government has done well, um, really well, is implement rooftop solar. Um, it's easy to connect to the grid in Australia with a rooftop system. Um, local electricians can um, know how to install rooftop uh, solar systems safely. Um, they had good training schemes to get them to do that, um, that were government sponsored. Um, so um, it's not often I can actually say that our government's done something well, but um, they, they did, and um, they did with rooftop solar. And what it's meant is it, it, it's, it's very competitive um, a, as a form of energy. And, and so we're going to see increasingly gas come under pressure. Um, gas usage in Australia is falling quite dramatically, both in the power sector and, um, and in industry. And, and it will begin to fall now in the domestic, in the domestic scene as well. And I think we'll see similar trends globally um, over time. Um, gas is an expensive fuel. And I think that um, 
particularly liquefied natural gas, which, you know, you've got to compress the gas, which involves burning an awful lot of gas. About 9% of the gas that goes into an LNG plant is burnt. You've got to ship the gas in a specialised um, vessel and then you lose lose some um, when you regasify it. So there are huge energy losses and and um, and, and costs involved in, in using LNG. And I think increasingly you'll find that our customer uh, countries will turn away for climate and cost reasons. Will turn away from gas. Well, what is the the debate like in your part of the world when it comes to the nuclear question? I mean, I mean, this is a very polarizing debate because there are some people who say that you know the only way to get to decarbonization is to also have nuclear power. And others who say that the risks surrounding nuclear power are just too high, that, you know, nuclear waste can be fatal. It could be fatal to future generations. What's your opinion? Well, look, setting aside the environmental arguments and the, um, and certainly I think in Australia, it would be, um, it, it's kind of one of those things that the opposition is has has jumped upon um, the idea of having nuclear power in Australia, which is pretty bizarre because we don't have a nuclear power industry in Australia at present. We have a lot of gas and um, coal and sun and wind, and they are far cheaper than nuclear power is. Um, but the opposition has jumped on this as a as a as a a. a um, cultural issue if you like and and they have um promoted the idea of nuclear power here i actually don't think it will happen because the lead times are too long we don't have an indigenous industry it's going to be very very expensive you know there have been a number of inquiries into having a nuclear industry power industry in australia and they've all come to the same conclusion it's not economic um so um and then you have the problem of where you're going to put it. You know, Australia is a society that um, certainly knows how to protest. Um, so I, I, I just don't think I don't think you're going to get one up, um, uh, practically speaking. Uh, in addition, you know, they were looking at small modular nuclear reactors. You know, this was the big hope of the future. And as you'd know, being in the, you know, the the US, some. Um, North America. I mean, I'm you know I'm in in the US. Some um, new scales nuclear reactors, uh, small modular nuclear reactor, has basically failed. They, they've failed to proceed with it. They had massive cost overruns, and um, the project has been pulled. So um, the idea of small modular nuclear reactors is is um, is really a concept. It's it's not something that's in existence today. And so relying on nuclear to get us out of this pickle is somewhat strange when, you know, particularly small nuclear is, is, is just a concept. It's not really a, a thing in existence in the Western world. So I don't, I don't really think it's going to get us there. Um, it's too far down the road. You know, we need to decarbonize in the very short term, not in the out decades. We need to be doing stuff now to be able to get to net zero by 2050, not rely on some magic bullet that may or may not come in just before 2050. Um, the lead times on nuclear are horrendously long. 
Um, globally, the cost overruns have been mind-blowingly large. Um, when you look at the ones in Europe, um, even in the home of nuclear um, France, you know they can't build one anymore for a reasonable price. You know, Flamanville was years over 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 schedule, and and multiples of the original cost. Um, you know, EDF and Man, the French company, tried to build one in the UK, and that's you know years over date due, and and multiples of the original cost. Um, you know they, they 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 can't really get it right in Europe in 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 the US they've been unable to get nuclear right in recent history as well. Um, witness new scale that we've already talked about, but even with traditional nuclear plants, you know they've had tremendous trouble with the vertical plant, for example, um, just building them. So um, you know I I I don't see it as being a, an economic an economic solution. Um, to decarbonizing, and I think that that's a key point. Even if you divorce yourself from the more emotive side of the argument, which is the environmental side, even if you just go right, let's forget about the environment for a moment. Can we actually build one of these things on time, on cost, and get power at a reasonable price to the populace? And the answer is no, we can't. Now, it hasn't been demonstrated anywhere in the Western world in recent history. Anywhere in the Western world in recent history. So, um, and by recent, I mean the last 20 years. Um, so, you know, there has to be some element of reality about the nuclear debate, and at the moment, there's not. Yeah, it does seem like it's a pipe dream at the moment. It's just too expensive. Just too expensive. I do want to ask you again about Anthony Albanese, who's the Prime Minister of Australia, and he's from the Labour Party. And he has presented an amendment to a climate bill which would require policymakers to take into consideration the well-being of children when they're, you know, debating or making climate policy. And so I'm wondering how feasible this legislation is and how much teeth his climate legislation has had in general. How do you compare it to his predecessor, conservative Scott Morrison? Uh, look, I think I think when you look at um uh, when you look at the change in administration, the new administration, the Labor government in Australia has talked a big game on climate, but really it has missed one very fundamental point, uh, one very basic point, and that is to reach net zero, we cannot have any coal, oil or gas projects, and this government is permitting new coal, oil and gas projects. So while it has some good policies on climate, strengthening the safeguard mechanism is one of those. Um, it's a good idea. Um, while it has some good ambitions in renewable energy to produce more renewable energy in Australia and decarbonise the electricity sector, quite rapidly and quite ambitiously, the Labor government has um, um, uh, pursued that goal. Um, it has to recognise that, 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 that all this is wasted effort. All this is totally wasted effort if we continue to fuel the global need for more oil and gas, the, 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 the global demand out there that is, is frying the planet. Um, you know, the, the government in Australia deals with global warming as if it's a local problem. And by its very nature, global warming is a global problem. So it's no good Australia reducing its emissions if we give the world 
gas to increase emissions. The two are, 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 are totally opposed. And this is, this is the fundamental, if you like, dishonesty about the current government's climate policy is it is fueling global work. Well, that's an excellent point. You can't meet those commitments if you're, if you have two contradictory policies, if you have one at home and one abroad, that's obviously not going to help with reducing emissions and, and trying to prevent global warming from going past 1.5 degrees and potentially reaching other tipping points. Yeah, well, I think I think the fundamental point is global warming is a global problem. And until we start thinking that way, we all the solutions we come up with don't address the problem. Uh, until Australia actually realises that it is actually the cause of global warming by providing increased amounts of gas globally, um, uh, until until we you know face that fundamental fact, you know, really we are just just chewing around the edges. Well, I actually do have one more question. Now that you mentioned that. Would you say that that strategy is part of, you know, this money-making scheme where the elites benefit from the oil and gas sector, where you have a different policy at home, so you try to cut emissions at home to maybe keep the domestic population uh, content, especially if they're more um, aware of the impacts of climate change and, and they do want to make a difference domestically, but that you still keep exporting all of your gas in order to make a buck and and keep the system running essentially and to, to ensure that there's cons- consolidation and monopolization of uh, the big oil and gas sector. Look, certainly it's, um, it, it, it is a, a, a policy of appeasement, if you like. You know, they, they are trying to appease. If you look at the safeguard mechanism, the, the the actual the actual economic effect of the safeguard mechanism is fascinating because by treating emissions as a local problem, they penalise domestic industry and they encourage the oil and gas industry because only a small slither of the emissions, ten to fifteen percent of the emissions from oil and gas, are produced in Australia, and that's all that the safeguard mechanism addresses. If you have a domestic manufacturing industry or value-adding industry, most of its emissions will be in Australia. And so they will be paying to try and reduce their emissions while the oil and gas is exporting emissions. And that's the key point. So what the safeguard mechanism does is it penalises domestic industry and encourages the oil and gas industry through this you know, quasi-taxation the the, 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 the the safeguard mechanism is. And so what it does is it appeases the oil and gas industry at the expense of domestic um, domestic industry. And that's a terrible, a terrible thing to do because not only does it have bad employment effects, it also has the effect of, of, of distorting economic signals for domestic manufacturing and obviously some level of domestic manufacturing is a very good thing because it involves less shipping and transport and lower emissions as i always say it's far better to burn gas for gas intensive industries in australia and produce emissions in australia 
than it is to export that LNG up to China, which, where typically that happens, and produce the fertilizer in China or whatever the product is, and then re-import the fertilizer, which is the model that Australia has gone to. So we're penalizing domestic industry that would actually, by burning gas in Australia and producing the product here, we would be lowering emissions. And that's a bizarre concept when you think about it. Producing more emissions is actually a good thing. And um, so I, uh, because it's lower in the long run, it, it sounds strange, but, and I um, often have trouble explaining that one. Well, this is a concept I've never heard of, and it is a bit counterintuitive. Can you explain how Australia, by exporting its natural gas and letting the natural gas be burned abroad, is actually contributing to higher emissions globally than if it were to burn the same gas at home in Australia? Well, it's a bizarre fact of, of the way it's accounted for. When you actually think practically, practically what happens when you produce LNG, it, it takes 9% of the gas just to produce the LNG and a further 2 to 6% to ship it. So you've lost 13% of the gas just in that process, and then you have to re-import the product that's been made offshore, which is an energy-intensive process in itself. So if you burnt the gas in Australia and made the product in Australia, you don't go through the LNG process. You don't go through the re-importation process. So the emissions are far lower. However, under the accounting stand, under the emissions accounting that we have, the emissions would occur in Australia and our emissions would be higher. But in fact, they're lower. And this is a bizarre thing. It is much better... If you have a process that we don't have an alternative for at the moment and we, we need some high heat gas to, to, to do, we're much better off doing that in Australia than doing it in China, which is where typically it's done now and, and we've exported our manufacturing. And this means much higher global emissions. And that's the key point. Global warming is a global problem. Well, we're actually ending on the exact same note that we did last time we spoke, which was how most of the world's emissions are exported to China, essentially. That just confirms yeah. another thing we were speaking about last time, where a lot of the manufacturing that's done throughout the world has been, uh, over the past few decades, sent to China, and so they have higher emissions. And it seems like this is another example of you know, exporting oil to other countries such as China where the emissions are actually then released there. Yes, and yet the product, who's the consumer? It's the Western consumer, basically, that, that, that's driving driving the emissions. And, and that's the key point. Well, Bruce Robertson, it was fascinating speaking to you again. I always learn a lot whenever I speak to you, so thanks so much for making time. And thank you for watching TheAnalysis.News. If you enjoy this content and would like to help us continue making this show, you can help us out by going to our website, TheAnalysis.News, and making a small contribution if you can. Thanks for joining us.